So we're now going to transition and start our new series. We're starting a new series in 1 Corinthians 5 through 10. I sit down an email this week asking for prayer because this is a controversial subject. I feel like I'm uh, inviting negativity by studying this, but one of the things that we've been committed to at Grace Bible Church is we're going to study what the Bible says on all topics. We're going to work through the scriptures and try to not avoid the difficult subjects. Um, So we're calling this series The Messed Up Church because 1 Corinthians, it's one of the longest letters in the New Testament. It has this huge section in the middle of it, chapters 5 through 10, which will be where we're focusing here. I think we're going to come to the end of 1 Corinthians in the new year. Uh, But for the fall, we'll we'll focus on chapters 5 through 10. And and Paul has all kinds of criticisms for the church. And so what's happening in the Corinthian church, in the city of Corinth, is that they were kind of taking in the worldliness, the pagan ideas, the secular ideas of their culture. They were beginning to absorb those ideas and how they lived. And Paul was correcting them and saying, no, if you're going to follow Jesus, Jesus wants you to obey him and live in a new way. And that is not popular in today's day and age because, frankly, the American church is much like the Corinthian church. We're we're very much like the Corinthian church where we've absorbed the the anti-God ways of our culture and we've compromised in many ways. So we're praying that this time would help us to, to just refocus on what God has for us, to be about the business that Jesus has called to us, to call us back to obedience, faithfulness to the Lord. That's our hope. That's our prayer as we study this together. Um, and so right out of the gate, great first topic this week, we're calling it sexual immorality, sexual immorality. And I did also warn, I gave a children's warning this week. I think I'm only seeing a few children in here, and I think you got that warning. Um, But it's going to be PG-13, possibly even R-rated the next few months. Um, Paul's going to come back to this several times. He's going to talk about idolatry and legal issues uh, as well, but there's going to be a lot of discussion of sexual immorality. So right out the gate, we're going to be in chapter 5, talking about sexual immorality. We're going to be on page 954 in the Black Bible. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those black ones, open it up to page 954. That's where you will find... 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, I want to give you an image that I think might help you relate. Uh, as we think about sexual immorality and the lure that it has on our hearts as a people, uh, we want to acknowledge that we all start off as, as lonely people, right? We're all strugglers. We're all lonely. We're all longing for companionship. And what I want you to see as we move through this over the next few months is that sex is not the answer to loneliness, okay? Sex is not the answer to loneliness, but it's often where we go quickly. Um, And an image that I think will be helpful for this is fire. Um, Sex is a powerful and beautiful gift from God, but he intends us to enjoy this gift within boundaries. The, The Christian teaching on this is that sexuality is only to be enjoyed and participated in the covenantal boundaries of lifelong, covenantal, heterosexual marriage. We have a statement on human sexuality that we've put in our own doctrinal statement, and I've photocopied that with some other articles, and that's on the back table if you want to look at that in more detail. You can find that stuff online as well, but I put some paper copies in the back. We've also got other resources just on the subject of sexuality written by the Biblical Counseling Center at Westminster Seminary. So some of those little booklets are on the back table as well. Um, You can take those if you want them, or if you want to put a little extra money in the box to help us buy more of those, that's great as well, but you can just take those as needed. Um, 
So there's this idea, this image of sexuality being like fire in a fireplace. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've often done this where we're around a campfire, right? Maybe the fire pit in our backyard, and it's a cold night, you know, one of the rare 10 or 20 cold nights we have in Central Texas, and you're putting your feet up close to the fire. Have you ever done this to warm your feet? And you get a little closer, and you get a little closer, and then you start to smell something weird. And the rubber on your shoes is starting to melt. Has that ever happened to you? Um, I think that's a good, thank you, sir, for your honesty in the back. I think that is, that happens to me a lot. Uh, I've ruined a lot of shoes that way. I, th- I think sexuality is like that. There, there's this very normal desire and drive, right? And as I said, it's this gift, but, but it's got to stay in the boundaries. And if it doesn't stay in the boundaries, then damage begins to happen. Uh, if y'all have been around our church very long, you know that I've got a lot of experience with that. We've had multiple house fires and seen the damage that fire can do. So I warn you from a place of uh, sober reality, it really is something that can be dangerous. So what we want to do today is we want to look at the text and say, what does God have to say about sexuality? And what is our response? And how can we trust Jesus in the midst of it, right? Just knowing again, just off the bat, that our friends that don't follow Jesus are going to disagree with us. And he talks about that in the text as well. And that's okay. It's okay if our friends disagree with us. We don't want to be jerks about it, but we want to be faithful to Jesus. We owe our allegiance to Jesus and to his directions in his word. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved into the day, in the day of the Lord. It's a very important thing that we need to underline here, there in verse 5. He's saying the purposes of this, what seems culturally harsh behavior on the church's part, is that this guy might be saved, that he might be redeemed. Verse 6 says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, the swindlers, idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What's fascinating, the last line is a quote from Deuteronomy 17. Uh, You know in the Old Testament, part of what makes it hard for modern people to read the Bible is is just the harsh strictness of the Old Testament law. Uh, And people literally got the death penalty for disobedience or they were cast out and exiled from the community altogether. And what's fascinating is in the church today, what we see is what used to be considered the death penalty in the Old Testament law is now transferred to the church of saying, um, you're no longer a part of God's people. 
Now, this word is sometimes referred to as excommunication. Anybody ever heard the word excommunication? Um, th- that is a thing. It really comes from the root of like, you're no longer invited to take communion with us, to fellowship with us as a follower of Jesus, if you're purposefully walking away from Jesus. So this is really difficult for us, kind of no matter where you come from on the spectrum, it's easy to kind of fall off the horse on one side or the other, right? And so what I want to say is we want to be faithfully obedient even when it's difficult, even when it's difficult. But we also want to be gracious, open, welcoming people. Like how, how do we live that out? How can we do both of those things? It seems like an impossible task to hold those together. Because the world, especially now, especially with kind of the disintegration of culture and the disintegration of of media. Everything's being pushed to the fringes right now. And so you're going to be taught again and again that when you're trying to find a healthy church, that there are only two options. There are churches that completely embrace everybody and don't care about sin at all, and they're the loving ones, right? Or there are the tough churches that are condemning people all the time, right? Those are the churches that really care about truth. And I think as faithful followers of Christ, we need to try to pull those tensions together. And this, this is a good text to help us see that. There are things in this text that seem like contradictions already, and that's that, that walk of, of being faithful to Jesus. What does it mean to be faithful to Jesus and yet to also not be a judgmental jerk? Like, how do we, how do we live that out? I'm going to pray that God would teach us. I believe the, the scripture here has the answers to this, but also we need the Holy Spirit to even be open-minded to what God has to say. So let me pray for us. God, we pray that your word would speak to us. We pray that you would um, take away the blinders on our hearts and our eyes. Uh, allow us to hear from you, to be receptive to you. God, we confess that we come up through a, a particular culture And that culture shapes our thinking. And so we come in here with values of right and wrong and how things should be done. And we're asking you, Lord, humbly that you would correct us if we need it, that you would help us to grow, help us to love you, help us to love others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I've got a pretty simple outline as we move through the text here in 1 Corinthians 5. And he kind of swirls around in his arguments. So it's not always easy to break it up into little bites. We're going to try to go through it mostly in order and go through these three points. Number one, sexual immorality exists. We kind of have to establish that. There is such a thing as sexual immorality. And I need you to acknowledge, whether you're a, a very strong, faithful, committed Christian, or this is the first time you've ever been in a church, that our culture teaches us that sexual immorality as a category does not even exist. More broadly, our culture teaches us that sin as a category does not exist. And so that's generally what our culture says. Sin doesn't exist. Sexual immorality doesn't exist. The real problem is people being judgmental. We just need to throw off any sense of morality. And then that will heal our souls. On social media, I see it all the time that it, that it causes psychological harm when you tell someone that what they're doing is wrong. And in a sense, I would agree with that but it's worth it. <laughs> it's worth facing that psychological harm. Uh, one of the great cases of this kind of psychological harm takes place in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees the Lord, and he says, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, from a, from a people of unclean lips. We are unclean. We are sinful. We are undone. When we come in contact with the holiness of God, our first response should be, to feel like we're falling apart. And, and you could argue that is, in a sense, psychological harm, right? 
but, but we need to be broken so that we can see the good news of a God who then comes after us in love, who has taken away our sin, who says, while you were yet sinners, I died for you. I'm going to take your sin upon myself, and I'm going to give you my righteousness. So, so the way around our problems with sexual immorality is to not say they don't exist. It's to repent and to turn to Jesus. So that'll be the number one point. Sexual immorality exists. And then we've got a couple of points that are a little more applicational. Um, number two, members of a church mourn immorality. It's something to be mourned. He uses that word specifically. And then number three, members honor outsiders. Members honor outsiders. And that's the tension, right? Those two points kind of are the opposite sides of that tension. We should actually mourn immorality, not tolerate immorality uh, in certain senses, as he's going to describe in the text. And then we should also honor outsiders. So there's this kind of tension of of judging. He actually uses the word judge. He tells us to judge, right? We've always been taught that's the worst thing in the world. Well, he says we should judge some things. And then also we should be loving and tolerant of outsiders, is what he says. So again, that's, that's that tension that we see in this outline. So first of all, sexual immorality exists. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So now, some commentators would say, so really this is about how bad the sexual immorality is, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's really fair. Uh, I think really this, what he's discussing here talks about all kinds of immorality because later on, verses 9, 10, 11, he's going to bring in other kinds of sin. And he's going to say, basically, sin is sin. And so let's start off with sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, specifically, this is an especially bad kind that's happening here. So he says, Y'all are crazy because pagans don't even tolerate this, right? And so that's really just an added argument. This is not essential to what he's saying. This is an aside argument. He's saying, this is even worse that you would tolerate this. Like, I could understand you tolerating some things, but this is even worse because pagans don't even tolerate this. So here's a way to think about this. Uh, Historically, theologians describe this concept called natural law. Have you ever heard of natural law? It's the idea of like my, my pagan brother or sister, my pagan friend might say, yeah, this is the way the world works and immorality is generally bad for human flourishing and doing these things is good for human flourishing. And so that intersection between what we believe revealed in the Bible and what other people see revealed in nature, that's sometimes called natural law, kind of just obvious, this is good for people, this is bad for people, Right. So Paul's saying, this is even worse, because not only are you violating Scripture, you're even violating natural law. Like, even the pagans know that you're being an idiot here, that this is bad, that this is uh, immoral. He says, specifically, a man has his father's wife. Most people think, basically, this guy has now married his stepmother after his dad passed away, is, is the guess. We don't really, really know. Whatever, all we know is that it's gross, right? We know that much. The Greek word for sexual immorality is the word porneia. Does that sound familiar? Porneia? Yeah. So we get pornography. Pornography would be pictures of sexual immorality. That's basically what the word means, Porn, pornographic, right? Graph, picture. And so porneia means sexual immorality. In the ancient world, there were two basic definitions of it. There was a very tight, narrow definition of prostitution, temple prostitution, and things that entailed, you know, that, that lived in that universe. So that's kind of a narrow definition of pornography in the ancient world. But it was also used in a broader sense to just talk about any kind of sexual impropriety. So the ancient world had prostitution specifically, and then a broader use of that word as well. And then when we look at the Jewish teaching in the Old Testament, which was the scripture of the New Testament Christians, 
We see Leviticus 18 uh, very clearly outlining the boundaries of sexual, sexual immorality. And so it's basically any sexual activity outside of lifelong covenantal heterosexual marriage. I mean, anything. Pornography, um, living together, uh, you know, multiple divorces and remarriages, homosexuality, they're, they're like the list goes on and on, right? Uh, we have a statement on marriage and sexuality. As I said, we put that in the back of the room. You can read that online or on the paper. But the idea is that any sexuality outside of covenantal, lifelong, heterosexual marriage is considered biblically sexual immorality. And so it's important to understand this. It's very clear in Scripture. There's really no debate about it. I attached to our statement a second statement that's a response to some of the debates that have come up in the last 10 or 20 years saying, oh, no, there was a, you know, we misunderstand the ancient world and they'd never thought of things the way we think of it now. You know, there's a lot of strange arguments out there. I've dealt with them. I've, I've listened to those lectures and, and read those arguments. And those arguments do not stand up. And if you'd like to talk about it more, I'd love to talk to you more about it. But there's a very clear definition. This, this thing called sexual immorality, it exists. And as Christians, we want to acknowledge, as we call people to obey Jesus, we're calling people to something difficult, something hard, something narrow, something different than what the culture practices, and that's okay. Like, the culture doesn't have to agree on us for us to be okay in following Jesus. Does that make sense? And so we want to be faithful to what Jesus has told us. So porneia, sexual immorality, it's anything outside of the fireplace of marriage. I grabbed a picture here of some people roasting s'mores around a campfire, a back, backyard fire pit. Um, how many of you have a fire pit in your backyard? Anybody? Okay, some of you have that. Um, the last house fire I had, I've told you, I've had a few house fires. The last house fire I had, when the fireman came, he's like, hey, your fire pit is illegal. You need to change your fire pit. You need to dig it down into the ground. You need to get a screen to cover it up. So we made some adjustments to make it safer, right? And so anytime you're dealing with fire, if you have a fireplace in your house, right, it, there, are, there are boundaries, right? You are careful about it. It doesn't mean we're anti-fire, right? Christians are not anti-sex. Christians just say God has a very, very clear, very narrow definition of like, this, this is what it's for. This is how it works. And so what we do is we say, okay, I'm going I'm to trust Jesus even when he calls me to hard things. And then secondarily, I'm going to trust that what he says is actually good for me too, and so here's how this works. It's sometimes described as the third use of the law. But what happens is as Jesus changes your heart so that you believe he's trustworthy, then you can look at his commands, the Old and New Testament. We believe that the morality in the Old and the New go together. And you can say, okay, I, I don't immediately see the sense of this, right? Like for me, this sin looks fun. And a matter of fact, I, I tried it last week and it was fun. But he says I shouldn't do that. So because I trust Jesus, because Jesus died for me, I'm going to obey him. And so we, we get this mixed up sometimes when we say, the only way that God will be pleased with me is if I obey him perfectly all the time. That, that's not the gospel, right? That's legalism. That's saying, if I obey him, then he'll be pleased with me. Now, the gospel is, I'm going to try to obey him because he's already loved me in Jesus. You see the difference? That's a very important difference for Christians, and that's part of what guards our heart against being judgmental towards others. In our statement on uh, marriage and sexuality and gender, one of the things that we've said is that the leaders of Grace Bible Church are grieved that some people feel less welcomed by churches than others. And we affirm that all people need God's grace, 
regardless of sexual desires. So what I want you to know is if this has been a particular area of struggle in your life, you are loved and you are welcomed here. And we believe that all human beings struggle. And so I want to challenge you, if this has been a particular struggle in your life, to not belittle the struggle of other people, to recognize that all human beings struggle. There are some unique struggles that are in detail different in the way that they manifest in different lives, but we all struggle. We all struggle, and we all need Jesus' grace to help us to obey him. And so we wanted to make that clear in our statement. We do believe that there are certain boundaries and norms that God calls us to, certain uh, ways of obedience, but we also recognize, man, we all struggle in different ways, and our goal as a church is to walk beside you. We want to help you to obey Jesus. We want to acknowledge that it's difficult for all of us. We said in the statement, we are a community seeking to submit our competing desires to our ultimate desire, which is union with Christ. We're all made up with all kinds of competing desires. And as we follow Jesus, what we're saying is, Jesus, you're my ultimate desire, obeying you, trusting you. And so we're constantly navigating these competing desires, saying, oh, okay, this this desire is one I need to set aside, one I need to fight. So, Applicationally, before we move on, sexual immorality exists. It's a thing. Think about it in your own life. Do I acknowledge that this is a thing? Do I acknowledge this category, that there is sin? Or am I saying, oh, I can, I can be happy and avoid uh, psychological harm by just saying that sin doesn't even exist? That's, that's a common way the culture does it. The other side, what religious people often do, is they lie about sin by saying, I never sin, right? That's, that's the opposite extreme. So we need to kind of recognize, okay, where am I? on the spectrum. Secondly, if you're engaged in sexual immorality, stop. It's bad for you. It's destroying you. God says it hurts you. We're going to come back to this more in the series. Paul's going to talk about it more in 1 Corinthians 5 through 10. Simple steps are confess it to God. Man, God, I'm, I'm doing the wrong thing. Help me. Um, confess it to others. Ask others to pray for you. Um, we've got different things that we can do. We've got Celebrate Recovery is a great Bible study on Monday nights. Really, all of our Bible studies are about coming together with other humans and saying, this is what the Scripture says, and then praying for each other and asking for prayer so that we can better obey the Scriptures. Um, if you're struggling with pornography, get an internet filter. One of the things, uh, I was talking about this with a friend years ago, one of the things that, that blows my mind is sometimes people say, well, it, it slows down my phone. Or it makes it difficult for me to use my computer, right? Yeah, that's okay, okay? That's just fine. Because otherwise, it's going to kill you. Like, it's killing you. So, so probably it's okay to have a slower computer. That, that's that's going to be just fine. So I just want to challenge you to, to make whatever sacrifices are, are necessary. I'm being a lot easier than Jesus. He says, cut your hand off, so. Number two... If you're engaged, and that is hyperbole, we can talk about that later if you want to. <laughs> if you're engaged in any ongoing sin, stop, right? So, so Paul says the sexual immorality, this is the presenting case, right? But sexual immorality is not worse than other sins. Paul then brings in like drinking and reviling, like, you know, slandering, gossiping, and these other issues, greed. So he's like, There's, this is not just conservative Christians versus liberal Christians, right? Or uh, these kinds of sins versus those sins. All sins are sins. So he says, any sin must be stopped. It must be repented from. It must be grieved over, acknowledged. The, the category of sexual immorality exists, but more than that, the category of immorality, the category of sin, it exists. 
And so again, the way that we deal with this primarily is by listening to God's word, worshiping together, taking communion, sharing with others in in Bible study and in prayer and saying, God, help me to wrestle with this sin. Help me to put it aside. Help me to put on Christ and put away sin. A couple of more things I want you to know. If you're single, develop godly friendships and don't see sex as the answer to loneliness. This is one of the greatest confusions in our culture right now is that we've merged the word sex and love so that it's like we can't even be on the same page anymore when we have conversations. Sex is not love, guys. It can sometimes be a part of a loving relationship, but we equate the two. Sex is not love and sex is not the answer to loneliness. And then finally, for married couples, who can tell you that sex is not the answer to all feelings of loneliness? If you're married and if you're struggling, work on your communication, work on your friendship, and work on your prayer life together. And and the other things will begin to take care of themselves. The other things will begin to take care of themselves. All right, second point. Members are to mourn immorality. I'm using the word mourn because that's the word he uses in verse 2. He's also going to use the word judge. So we're going to use that naughty word that nobody in our culture thinks we should ever use, okay? Just warning you, trigger warning here. The word judge is going to come up. But I'm using the word mourn because I think we want to say there's this general posture we should have of, man, this breaks my heart. This is not what Jesus has for me, right? Jesus has better things for me. Um, So there are two extremes we sometimes go to. One is an arrogant embrace of immorality. Like, look at us. We're so... We're so loving, we just embrace everything, right? That's one extreme churches go to. The other extreme is, look at us, we're so strict, we condemn everything. And God is pleased with us because of how strict we are, right? Instead of the sacrifice of Jesus, we're saying our strictness is what justifies us before God. So he says in verse 2, you are arrogant. The Greek word is puffed up. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't you be mourning? Shouldn't you be grieving? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. Again, we can't even, like, we're like, whoa, I don't, even, I don't even have a category for this as modern people. He's saying people that call themselves Christians and yet walk away from Jesus, we shouldn't continue to say, yeah, everything's fine. So I'm using the word mourn because I think that's the bottom line. It's mourning. The, the technique of how this works is going to look different in different Christian gatherings, Right? Um, For us, we would generally say, man, anybody is welcome in this gathering. People come. We're not going to say you can't come in here. Uh, But if you're coming in here and saying, hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm breaking all of Jesus' commands, and you keep taking communion, we're we're probably going to challenge you and say, you shouldn't do that. You're you're acting like you're Christian in here, but then you're acting like you're not a Christian out there. And that's going to be confusing to people. That's part of the argument that Paul is making. You have to make your choice, either stumblingly fall forward and try to obey Jesus, try to obey Jesus, or turn away and say, I'm not a Christian. What he's saying is we shouldn't be arrogantly proud of, we're a community where everybody does whatever they want. He's saying that's not, that's not the okay category. You're arrogant. Let him who's done this be removed from you. Verse 3, for though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The idea is that if we talk to our friend that's 
turn from obeying Jesus and say, hey, you can't, you can't say you're a Christian and continually disobey Jesus. You can't be proud of it. You can't be arrogant about it, right? We're not saying that you'll be perfect when you follow Christ. We're just saying you can't say, I don't care. It doesn't matter what I do. No, it matters. You've got, you've got to try. You've got to try to obey Jesus. And so if we would say to that person, you, you can't continue to gather with us like everything's normal. There's got to be some acknowledgement that something here is broken, man. You've you got to put yourself in the category of, I'm here just listening. I'm not sure if I even want to follow Jesus anymore. That's great. Come on. We, we always gather for both the curious and the committed. That's very important to us. We're here for those that are curious about Jesus. We're here for those that are committed to Jesus. What we don't want to do is encourage people to really not be committed, but talk like they are. We just want to define that relationship. We want to help people to be honest about what they're doing. He says in verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you know? Do you not know the little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, for some of you, you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about. He, he's pulling in their holiday festival rituals from Passover. And so just to kind of give you broad brush, Passover was such a, a popular, well-known, central holiday in their lives that this would be the equivalent of us making an argument to people that are new to the Christian faith talking about Christmas. In our culture, everybody knows Christmas, and we could use illustrations talking about gift-giving and Christmas carols, right? They're just things that even though people didn't grow up in the Christian community, they'd know what you were referring to about Christmas. And that's kind of the argument he's saying here. These are pagan people that have converted to Jesus. Most of them didn't grow up Jews, but they totally get what he's saying about Passover. So Passover was when this lamb was sacrificed to take our place, the Old Testament people of God, when they were in the Exodus being brought out of slavery. And so what he's saying is, We've got the true Passover, right? This ancient Passover was a real lamb sacrificed and God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus is the new, the ultimate, the permanent Passover lamb. And we're rescued from sin and death. So he talks about leaven, right? The yeast and the lump of dough, the things that rise and spread, these microscopic things that multiply. And he's saying sin is like that. And part of their ritual for observing the Passover was to say, we are the holy people of God. God has made us holy and saved us. Therefore, because of God's grace and saving us, we are now going to live in a new and a holy way. So the Passover ritual of removing leaven from their house was a way for them to say, because God has made us holy, we are now called to live up to that holiness. We're now going to pursue him in a new way. And so I I grabbed a picture here of... uh, a sacrifice of a lamb. It's kind of a gross picture. Sorry about that. Um, just to get you thinking, they were all very familiar with these rituals, right? And even the, you know, even the ones from the pagan background, they had all kinds of sacrifices, all kinds of systems, all kinds of temples. They were familiar with all this. And he's saying, hey, this purity, this holiness is based on what Jesus has done for you. Since Jesus has been sacrificed for you, since he spilled his blood for you, You owe him your life. Obey him. Follow him. 
If you don't think his blood means anything, then don't follow him. But here's what you cannot do. You cannot say, Jesus' blood means everything to me, and then walk in the other direction. That's what Paul is attacking here. We've got to mourn immorality. We've got to grieve those who say, I love Jesus, and then don't love him, right? Again, as I said, none of us are perfect. We all stumble in many ways. And what he's talking about is this pride of sin, this saying that immorality does not matter. That's really the issue at play here. And so when he says, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, what he's saying is we're defining the relationship for people and we're saying you got to either choose, either, either you know, act like a non-believer and don't call yourself a believer or call yourself a believer and try to obey Jesus. And we'll help you. And you'll stumble and I'll stumble. We'll all stumble together. But we're going to try to obey Jesus. You've got to choose which way you're going to go. And as we do this for people, what happens is as, as we tell someone, man, you're not acting like a Christian, you know, I don't, I don't think you can still fellowship with us in the same way, right? I don't think we can still have this closeness with you as a brother or sister in Christ. What Paul is saying is this actually helps people to hit rock bottom. He's saying what happens is otherwise we're kind of protecting them from the consequences of their sin. We're kind of enabling their sin. We're saying they're there, it's okay, and we're not allowing them to feel that, that distance from God. So he says, as we do this, based on our new identity as members of, of the community of the ultimate Passover lamb, he's made us clean, so therefore we're going to try to live clean. We're also going to challenge each other to these standards. Now, another thing I need to say about this, there's, there's something that goes really wrong in Christian communities that get overly excited about exhorting and challenging each other. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a community like this where people are like doubting and questioning every move you make, every decision, they're interpreting your heart motives. That is not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about obvious disobedience of the big commandments of God where everybody knows and it's black and white. He's not saying like, hey brother, I, I saw the way you frowned the other day and you know, the Lord says we shouldn't frown at people. You know, like we just have this way of like, judging every little thing that people do, we need to be really careful about that. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying if someone is just blatantly, obviously, publicly walking away from Jesus, you can't allow them to keep calling themselves a follower of Jesus. That's really the bottom line here. So what does this look like in our communities? Um, I've seen this look a lot of different ways. Uh, Typically, when this happens in our Christian community, there's a kind of natural social process that takes place. Other people in the small group or other people in the ministry are like, hey, man, you you can't do this. Or, hey, this is not okay. Jesus doesn't want you to do this. And and what happens is typically people just leave. They don't want to be challenged. And so that's typically how this unfolds. Um, But here, Paul's saying, but you're just kind of welcoming them and you're you're acting like everything's okay and they're staying and that's going to corrupt like the leaven. It's going to spread through the dough and it's going to corrupt things. It's going to begin to create a culture where it doesn't matter if we obey God or not. All right, third point, members honor outsiders. Members honor outsiders. We don't separate from non-Christians for acting like non-Christians, right? We're honorable, we're hospitable to outsiders. We don't even separate from Christians for acting like non-Christians, really. We just separate from Christians when they keep doing it and say they don't care 
and they're proud of it, right? That's the only time that we would separate. So he goes on in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That word associate in English sounds kind of soft. It sounds kind of like you can't even be in the same room with them. It really means don't be super close and tight with them, okay? So again, some of you are like, well, what do we, what do, we do? You know, if that comes up in our community, you got to mourn. you got to grieve. you got to judge that sin and say, this is not okay, and challenge them to obedience to Jesus. And you can't continue to walk with them in the same closeness that you used to have as a brother or sister in Christ. But here he's saying, but I'm not saying completely disassociate from people altogether. So the word associate is a very close-knit word. It's kind of living in dependence on each other. He said, I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people, verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, and the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. What's he saying? He's like, business as usual with your pagan friends, right? Like, you're still going to associate with them. You're still going to do business with them. You're still going to go to school with them. You're still going to live life. He's saying, really, the category is there are, there are people that are trying to obey Jesus. We're going to walk closely with them, pray for them, help them. There are people that don't care about Jesus. We're going to be their friends. We'll still associate with them. They're pagans. He's saying there's this middle category of people that are trying to have it both ways, and that's where we need to be careful. And there, here is where he's then connecting it with all sins. He's like, really, the, the issue is any other kind of sin, greed, idolatry, revilers, swindlers, drunkards. He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of these things. He's saying the issue is calling yourself a brother and then in an ongoing way walking away from Jesus. And it's any sin. It's not just sexual immorality. And he goes on and says, not even to eat with such a one. Commentators disagree over what this means. It either means taking communion together, kind of official membership. We're a part of the body of Christ together. Or some people think it means like not at all, eating. Um, it's hard to tell from the context. Again, I think the general tenor of the passage, the general tenor of the New Testament, a great cross-reference is Matthew 18, is things are not the way they used to be. Things can't be the way they used to be. You're like, Dave, I need you to tell me play by play in every situation how to handle this. I can't tell you in every situation how to handle this. What I'm saying is you've got to mourn and grieve and you can't celebrate life with them in the same way that you used to. Something's broken. Something's wrong. They need to know that you're grieving over their sin. So when they say, don't even eat with them, I think in the first century, if he's talking about not communion, but normal meals, the first century is a way more intimate, close thing to eat together with other people. Um, so, so either way, he's talking about a closeness that's probably not quite the same thing as us sitting at the same table as someone in a fast food restaurant. I don't think we need to take this um, overly legalistically. What's really important is that we say, man, things are not the same. Like you're this is not okay. I can't, I can't sit by and watch you walk away from Jesus. It's breaking my heart. We've we got to deal with this. So there's got to be an awareness of the problem. So I grabbed a picture of a dinner party here. And what's fascinating is Matthew 18 says that if your brother continues to sin, you've got to talk to them, pray with them, talk to them, pray with them, bring a friend, bring another friend, bring another friend, continue to pray, continue to pursue them, And if they still do not turn from their sin, then he says, treat them as a tax collector or a sinner. And here's the fascinating thing. How did Jesus treat tax collectors and sinners? We had parties with them, (laughs) right? So this is where this gets so difficult. We are not to separate from non-Christians for being non-Christians. Really, there's this weird, difficult dynamic where we are to separate 
from people that call themselves a brother or sister in Christ, call themselves a believer, but are not obeying Jesus. And that separation, it's hard, it's hard to define that. It's just hard to define that. But it needs to be clear, and they need to know, because the whole point of this is you're challenging them to turn and to trust in Jesus. One of the questions that comes up a lot is, what do you do if it's a family member? I personally believe that if you've got a family member in this situation, you're always going to be their family member. That's my personal interpretation. There's not a scripture verse for this one. So this is just me trying to reason from scripture. I believe that you are always going to be someone's family member, and you should always treat them as your family member. And that connection should be maintained. But again, there should be this mourning, this judging of the sin, the conversation that I don't, I don't think that's okay. I don't think this is this can stand, right? doesn't mean we're shunning and shaming and hurting people purposefully, but it means we got to talk about it. we got to deal with the issue because we believe that sin destroys us. We believe that it hurts us. And we want to call people to be faithful to Jesus. So a couple of different illustrations I want to challenge you on. Well, i still got to read verse 12 and 13. Those are the really hard ones, right? Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? He's, he's using that word, judge. Yeah, we are to judge what is right and what is wrong. We don't want to become judgy. We don't want to become judgmental. Jesus is very clear. Judge not lest you be judged by the same me- measure. Be very careful about your judgments. But still, repeatedly in the scriptures, we are called to make judgments. Paul's saying we, we need to be clear. This is not okay. We're not going to allow it in our fellowship. We're not going to allow this here. And then he goes on and says, verse 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's what I said was that death penalty word from the Old Testament, which again, it, you know, the strictness of the Old Testament can blow our mind, but it looks like the strictness from the New Testament can blow our mind as well. He's calling us to say, man, you, you can't continue to tell people that you belong to Jesus and disobey him and walk away from him. If you're struggling... And repenting, man, let's do this together. We're all sinners that are all struggling and we're all repenting. But if you become proud and say, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what Jesus says. I'm going to do whatever I want to. I'm going to follow my own desires. I'm not going to obey Jesus. But then you're still calling yourself a follower of Jesus. You need to reckon with that reality. We need to redefine that relationship. And those people need to be judged in the sense of told very clearly. We talk about it in our Constitution as a, an authority of proclamation. We proclaim that those who are blatantly and arrogantly disobeying Jesus are no longer followers of Jesus. And we want to invite you to get to know Jesus, to trust him, and to follow him. So as we think about this, how members are to honor outsiders, how we are to Allow God to deal with outsiders, but we deal with insiders. One question I need us to ask is, do we know any outsiders? Do you know any non-Christians? Do you have non-Christian friends? Do you see the pattern that Jesus was always connecting with outsiders? Are you able to celebrate the image of God in those people? Are you able to see that God loves them and has made them for himself? And are you able to have honest conversations with them? Honest, but not pushy. Are you able to say, yeah, I'm... I'm concerned about how you're living your life, but, you know, I'm, I'm not your judge. God is your judge, right? Like, so that's the kind of relationship we have with our non-Christian friends, which is different than our friends that claim to be a believer. And then finally, we want to pray for gospel change. Paul's going to come back to this in 1 Corinthians 6, 
in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? Saying those that don't love God won't inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's got this great list here that defies categories. He does this in Galatians. He does this in a lot of different places. When he lists vices and sins, he's always mixing it up. He's always kind of giving us a representative view. There are all kinds of sins. And he's saying, whether you grew up for this context in a wild pagan Greek home, or you grew up in a very strict conservative Jewish home, you're still all sinners and you need Jesus. Jesus is your only hope. It doesn't matter what kind of sin you're struggling with. No sin will inherit the kingdom of God. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you. What does that mean? All of us were sinners in need of a Savior. And now that we have a Savior, that doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means that our Savior is the one that's taking away our sin. It means the death of Jesus actually has taken away our sin. He has forgiven us by dying on the cross in our place. He's become our substitute, and he's given us his free righteousness. Such were some of you. We're not that anymore. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We've been changed by Jesus. Again, we're not perfect. I mean, just again, to to back up a little bit and say, Paul's talking to this church in Corinth here, and they're doing almost everything wrong, right? (laughs) Like, and he still considers them Christians. So, So we need to you know, be clear about this. What he's commanding us to is to not continue to say it's okay and it doesn't matter. But at the same time, he recognizes, we recognize, we all sin in different ways. We all stumble. Our identity is no longer founded in that sin. That's no longer our source of salvation. My sexuality, my money, my, my uh, education, my job, those things are no longer what I think saves me now. I believe Jesus is my salvation. So we need to wrap up here. We're running out of time. As I said, we've got a lot of handouts in the back. We're going to keep coming back to some of these great topics over the next few weeks. I want to encourage you to study it, to ask questions, to not, to not just walk away angry because I'll acknowledge this is hard for us culturally, but to engage in, in honest debate. We'd love to talk to you more about it. Um, as I said at the beginning, I think loneliness is a root issue here. Uh, we're all lonely and sexuality is not the solution for our loneliness. One of my favorite books that I've read uh, this year is a book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. We actually have a couple of copies I put back on the, on the table back there as well. And he's got some great, uh, just a great challenge for us about how sexuality is not the, the solution to our loneliness, but Jesus is. So let's end here with this quote from the book. Jesus offers us a friendship that gets underneath the pain of our loneliness. While that pain does not go away, its sting is made fully bearable by the far deeper friendship of Jesus. We're all lonely. The scripture is clear that sexuality is not the solution to loneliness, but God is. We're longing to be back in relationship to God, and Jesus is the answer to that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to clean up our act. He came after us. 
And then he says, because I've died for you, follow me. Start living the way that I ask you to live. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've given us Jesus. Lord, help us to learn compassion on these issues. Help us to continue to be humble and recognize that we sin in many ways, but that you've cleansed us and washed us by your blood. We pray that that blood would be active supernaturally, that as you fill us with your Holy Spirit, you would transform us, make us more and more like your son, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.